Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome to Musicals with Cheese, a podcast where I try to get Andrew to like musical theater more. And today is a very special episode. It is completely unlike anything we've done before, and I'm super excited. Uh, We're just straight doing an interview. (laughs) Yeah. We're joined by Edward W. Hardy, um, a violinist, composer, um, very famous for The Woodsman, which is now on Broadway HD. And he's also doing a bunch of tours and a bunch of um, 54 and below visits. He's incredible, and I'm sure y'all already know who he is, so let me not introduce him anymore. Edward, thank you for joining us. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. So, um, I'm just going to start the questions first and foremost. We're basically going to go down a chronological version of your life. Tell us a little (laughs) about you, your your background history, and what got you into music. What got me into music? So, I started when I was seven years old. I'm a part of something called uh, Opus 118. Um, There's actually a movie about it called Music of the Heart, where Meryl Streep played my teacher, Roberta Gaspar. Um, But I was in public schools, and there weren't any funding for for music or violins. And violins were the only thing that were uh, available at the time. So I gave up acting and dancing and chess club, mathematics club. I was in a lot of things, trying to stay busy, um, to start music. So I kept on playing this entire time from that to Juilliard to uh, getting my master's degree and and doing off-Broadway plays. You know, it's funny because uh, at Purchase College um, for my undergraduate, that's when I started composing music for, for plays. And I realized that the only way to really understand structure of a play or musical is to write music for the play that didn't have music. That would be a lot of Shakespeare plays. That would be a lot of August Wilson plays. Um, one of the first musical-esque uh, plays I've done was called Mother Courage that incorporated a lot of music, kind of like The Woodsman, but wasn't necessarily considered a musical. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's kind of how it all started, was was in school. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, did you find it hard to, like, start up in musical theater early on, or did you find it really easy to, like, fall into it? Actually, it was quite difficult. Um, Being classically trained, it was, I guess, musical theater almost seemed inferior to opera, which is very uh, bad to say and and, kind of silly now that I think about it. Because we didn't, like, we weren't experienced to it. You know, there was no um, invitation to go and see a musical or that we had to even study them. So it was very much, you play orchestral music and chamber music, and then you're in a pit of an opera. And then the first time that happened for me, it was very magical. And I started to realize how beautiful storytelling is beyond just the musical aspect of it. Now, of course, in opera, it can have, almost a tacky-ish production <laughs> or can have like phenomenal, you know, uh, musicians and, and actors, but musicals ended up telling it in a, in a different way that was very touching and made it feel more personal to, to the audience, or at least to me, um, more so than an opera that's in a different language. That's hard to understand. <laughs> what, what would you say the, the difference between an opera and a musical really is? It's always something I've struggled with a little bit. 
Sure. I think that it's much more concentrated on the musical aspect than, than anything else. Um, I think, uh, yeah, it's very much with an opera. It's about the composer and maybe their previous works that they're trying to relate the music to or whatever story that they, um, are trying to bring to light while adding themselves entirely in it. But I, I don't really know what the biggest difference between an opera and a musical is. Um, that's what I'm still trying to figure out myself. Um, yeah. <laughs> There's I a lot, a of, lot of it comes that I love. Yeah, yeah. I heard a lot of it comes down to if the singers are miked and what language it's in. Um, but I, I, I yeah, don't know. Yeah, that's true. too. There's a whole different type of singing, right, when it comes to operatic singing without the microphone, like you said. And musicals were maybe because they're dancing and acting and, and using their voice as well that they need to be mic'd. I don't know. Um, I, I honestly don't know. <laughs> I'm still learning that one. <laughs> so when you f- finished up your early career or early education and you went to Juilliard, what was your goal for Juilliard? Was it immediately like oh. to go into opera or was it to go into like just being another well, vi- incredible violist? Oh, sorry. Sure, I went to Juilliard when I was 10. I didn't go there for, oh. for college. I was very Oh my young. gosh. <laughs> so I wasn't well, that's a very career yet. That's a very different experience. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but for my undergrad at Purchase, um, I very much realized I wanted to be in theater. I didn't. I wasn't sure if it was musical theater or just a play. I didn't quite understand or see a big difference at that time because all the plays I ended up being in were very musical-based. Uh, there was so much music from the people singing and myself being almost as a, as almost as an actor, because I was always in costume on stage. I had this thing where I never wanted to be a part of a pit for some reason. Um, and I, I just like the responsibility of, of also being a part of the show and, and, and bringing another layer that's very different from what you would typically see in a play or musical. I'm going to guess that so, has a lot of influence on how you wrote The Woodsman since the uh, you got the lone violin on stage, uh, not in a pit. Very true. Um, that play is really, it, it feels, it's my baby and I love it so much and I, I want to continue to see it grow so much. Um, funny, it started as a dance piece. And I don't know if many people know that or or have researched that before, but it was very much a dance piece, you know, because there's barely any words and a small prologue in the beginning. That's pretty much what it was. And the person who originally choreographed everything was a dancer from Purchase College. And we were all Purchase graduates. I mean, I was still in school at the time. I think it was a, a junior when I was writing this. But you know, everyone from James to me being the youngest person, we, you know, all of us were purchase grads, but it was a dance piece with puppets that needed some music. And it was just a, about a 30 minute production for a party <laughs> for one of the company's plays in a party. Uh, How did you get tapped in to join? Uh, most of the time it was through one of the actors because I would do a, I, I did all of their plays at their conservatory. I was like an uh, unofficial acting conservatory major because I was the the music guy who always composed music to all the shows. <laughs> um, what? 
sorry. What is it like writing uh, a full show for one instrument? That seems like it could be like pretty difficult to pull off. It was. <laughs> it was really, it was really stressful at first. Um, some aspects of it were very emotional as well. There were even some parts where I would write something else like, oh, this is too good for this. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah, some of those, some of those like, love themes that I love so much. Um, I tried to imitate something from Romeo and Juliet, that opera, you know, and that, that orchestral setting. And I thought that's something that could have expanded to a greater piece on its own. Um, but it felt, you know, it was just the perfect amount for the connection between Nimi and Nick Chopper. But, uh, yeah, I needed to explore a few different genres, um, figure out how to fill up silence, because I've never played for that long before, <laughs> nonstop. I think there's about maybe a 30-second break that I have throughout the entire 75-minute production that it is now. Um, yeah, the violin just keeps going. <laughs> it just keeps going. <laughs> It's a lot of endurance, a lot of supporting what's happening in front of me, a lot of show, uh, uh, foreshadowing what's about to happen, and of course, introducing themes of each character and how they play with each other. Um, yeah, it was, it, it was kind of difficult. In the beginning, you know, James and I, we sat in a room, um, I think it was in, in Queens, and we just talked for a while about what we thought the scenes would look like. And that would already give me a lot of ideas on what the music sounds like. For some reason, if you tell me a story, I already start to hear music. It's like, oh, this is what I think would sound nice. Like, you know, so uh, he would tell me a bunch of his ideas and I would tell him mine and play for him. And that's kind of how it ended up happening. We would bounce each other's uh, ideas off of each other. Then a script was born and then uh, a score was born and it's funny throughout time we would say, Oh my gosh, I didn't realize that you're doing the, the three pizzicatos for, for the witch clicking her heels three times. Like, yeah, that's, that's what it's for. <laughs> you know, all these like little things that, that may or may not have been missed in the play are a reflection of what I see or have heard the idea from him. That all sounds very confusing. <laughs> I follow it pretty well. Like it makes sense. Like the follow-up question I had to that was how much involvement did you have with the sound design as well? And the sounds being made on stage to implement that into your like compositions. Uh, that one was, it, that came with each addition to expanding the play. So from what I remember, it wasn't much of, um, for instance, the Kalita that has this very unusual sound. We didn't really develop that to what it is now until we went to until we went off Broadway. Really, uh, before that, it was I think maybe at Ars Nova we kind of had something. Um, it's a drum that has some rosin, like I use for my bow, uh, and you pinch it um, with a string in the middle of the drum, and it makes this like rattling sound along with people kind of growling like a tiger or bear or something like that mm -hmm. and that's what develops that that eerie sound <laughs> um of the kalita so it was that one was more of a let's throw some ideas and try to invent this type of sound because you know everything is about creating what's happening in a play live you know none of it was it was sound effects so how do we replicate this sound of this unusual mythical creature 
every night. Okay, let's let's have a drum the old fashioned way, throw some pots and pans, see what happens. Um, <laughs> so. So I'm curious about the entire process from beginning to end, from just this dance piece at a party to off-Broadway and everything in between. I want to hear about that entire experience. Sure. Um, like I said, it started as a, as a dance piece, um, and we didn't think that it was actually going to continue afterwards. It was kind of one of those projects where it seemed like a cool idea, and let's just put this on. We're all creative people. We all love each other. Why not? Um, and then we got a very well response from the audience that wanted to see it again. So the next year we did it again. And it was the same thing. We did it for two, two days that time two shows. And then, um, a few months later we did the Ars Nova and then eventually 59s, 59 theaters. And I think it was more so of the response from everyone else that almost fueled our excitement for it. Um, from the beginning, I kind of always had this thought that it should be bigger than itself. And it continues to grow, but I still kind of feel like it's uh, it's almost there. Even though we've been off Broadway and there's a film about it, something about making it more operatic and making a, a larger set and having almost bigger things that still make it seem intimate as well. You know, it's wishful thinking that it becomes a Broadway show one day, but uh, that's kind of what I've always hoped and put into the universe. Um, but yeah, I think it was the, the response from other people, our determination and drive to tell this story, to make it very personal and bring ourselves into the play each time we've done it. Because each time we've done it, it's, it's changed a little bit here and there. Um, and I think that's what everyone starts to like about it and makes it real. Right, all these things that we are creating um, that don't have life to it until we bring life to it. Right, each puppet so beautiful until the, especially when the actors are those puppets, right? And they're not themselves; they are the Tin Man, they are the witch, right? Um, it, and then it's also well, behind the scenes, so much playing around with these puppets, so much playing around with every single idea and variation of what can be to see what works and what doesn't work, what looks silly and what looks fun or serious, you know? And I think this play also touches on so many different emotions. Um, so all that being said, uh, the music always had to change as well with each addition to uh, the script, its expansion of everything. The music also reflected what was happening, what's gonna happen, you know, every time the, um, the witch gets closer to an audience member or, or jumps, I have to do almost the exact same thing. I, I guess I don't necessarily have to, but that's what, something I wanted to as a composer, right? <laughs> something I'm telling myself, that's what should happen. And whoever else plays the, the, the part. Um, yeah, it was just a very, after, after the second um, rendition of it, it was very much a, a forward direction. Until until New Orleans stages, and hmm. Broadway HD. <laughs> yeah. Um. So my next question. question oh, sorry oh, about that. I'm, I'm gonna go. Oh, Andrew, I'm gonna go you first. Go. I think. <laughs> you go. <laughs> you might not have much insight into this, but I'm wondering if you know anything about how the puppetry and all that came about. How it came about. Um. 
like how it was created yeah like um who did you get to make the puppets and and whose idea was it to do that sure sure um that's all james ortiz that's his thing he loved from my understanding and the history i know about him before purchase as well i mean he's a phenomenal actor uh but he loved creating puppets and that's what he's really into that's what he's really known for nowadays that and set design um so that was very much all of his idea. I want to do a puppet show, and I don't know what else to do. <laughs> so then he asked <laughs> other people in his company, and eventually um, one of the actors asked me, oh, this guy from Purchase, all Purchase people, does all his plays, does all of our plays. Why don't we ask Eddie to go and write the music for the show? And that's how that happened. It's very, uh, it's very, very quick. <laughs> um, wow. But yeah, that's it, it was all his idea about doing puppets and then a combination of people to figure out how to tell a story and make the puppets come to life. But he was always the person that taught everyone how to maneuver each puppet, you know, because it's very easy to, uh, how do I describe this, to also do the motion of the puppet. Right, if you pick something up and you try to move it forward or back or make a jump, you almost want to do those things too because you're part of it. But that's not, yeah. at least what I saw. It's very much of a, you know, almost like playing violin. It's an extension of yourself. That's how the, the puppeteers are too. This, you no longer matter. You are the puppet now. And the, the team effort of making the puppet come to life and tell the story. Absolutely. My, my next question is about just your experience and were there any like massive hurdles that you felt were hard to come through either as a collective like creative team or you yourself as a composer massive hurdles uh let's see <laughs> there were some well some of them started with which were which is very innocent starting with um who's in the audience which is really funny um, you know, if there's a reviewer and if the New York Times was there, no one wanted to hear anything. And that could very much affect what's going to happen on, on stage. Um, I'm the oh, person yeah. that wants to know. <laughs> For some odd reason, I can also be a perfectionist. So I very much remember the day the New York Times was there because I asked one of the producers, like, who's in the audience today? It's like the New York Times, Laura, and, and don't tell anyone. Like, OK, I won't. Um, <laughs> And I tried to put my heart on a platter, you know, I tried to let it all loose, that that show. I mean, with every show as well. Um, but every show is a little different. So some of the hurdles were if the energy is low, if um, the weather was terrible. Most of the time we had this thing where we only did the show in the blizzard during midwinter in January. So a lot of things happened. You know, there's one day where I went there with uh, with a stomach flu and I still had to perform. <laughs> and they gave me a small little sippy cup like I'm supposed to do something with that, which is really funny. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the show must continue. And, you know, still, whatever muster you transform, you click the light switch on and perform because that's what matters. Uh, other hurdles. <clears throat> I think when... Generally speaking, when a show becomes more and more successful, it's harder to hold on to the true values and why it was first created and why you want to continue to tell that story, your story, 
and bring your best foot forward along with everyone else. Um, so as the play continued, it was it seemed like it was harder and harder for everyone to do that. Um, you know, credits going everywhere and fame's going everywhere and recognition from everyone. And it almost, yeah. you know, my, my biggest worry is that it becomes commercial. You know, that becomes so repetitive that it's on autopilot because that's not... Um, the show just gets too big for everyone involved. Right. It, it's not... And then it takes away from the performance itself. Right? It's... Every single time someone performs... Like, every time I play my violin, although they're small, I, I can't replicate exactly what happens each time. It's something different how I'm feeling. Maybe... Um, Maybe I lost something that day and I'm really sad that's somehow incorporated into what I'm doing as well. Maybe I'm having a great day and it changes ever so slightly. But of course, you always try to tell the story of what the piece is. Um, But if it becomes too commercial and everything is very, there's no more spark, um, then I guess only a few people will notice, right? If you're really a big fan, if you actually really pay attention, if you've seen it develop since, you'll see that it had it, it almost plateaus, um, and that was one of the big hurdles that, that happened at some point too. Um, but like I said, we're always like trying to get better, and that's always the goal. You know, to, to put on an even better production instead of just doing yeah what was what was uh, older version. <laughs> Um, do you have a favorite song from the show? Yes. Um, I know everyone loves the Resting Tin Man song, and it's great. I love it so much, too. <laughs> but uh, my favorite is the love theme. The love theme is from... It's used in two different songs from the album. Uh, is it Finding Love, I think. It, it's, it's the actual title is one of them i think the other one is is a part of it is in nick chopper as well the title of the the tracks uh but it's a 16 bar phrase i think 16 bars and it's it's what i was talking about earlier that replicates the romeo and juliet one where it's just continuous all the way into the last note would you like me to play it for you yes please yeah go for it (laughs) oh my god i hope it's not (laughs) (laughs) i wish this was a video podcast just so you could see the giant smile across my face as that was offered (laughs) i hope tell me if it's too loud i hope it's not um but this is the entire love theme that is my favorite part of the play Very softly. <laughs> um, How much do you usually charge for your part. 54 and below shows? Huh? How much do you usually charge for your 54 and below shows? 
Because we well, just got um, a deal. If you guys ever come to one, I'm, I, I'll give you a free ticket. <laughs> oh, really? Ooh. Yeah. Oh, oh, my gosh. <laughs> Eddie Hardy is the best guy ever. <laughs> okay. So that's from, uh, like a Romeo and Juliet. Well, not from, but inspired by uh, right. Romeo and I'll Juliet. I'll play the, uh, this, the version I was talking about that um, I was inspired by. continues and goes on further and further yeah but that's very much what i heard and i said oh my goodness that that's such a beautiful theme to me and i thought if i can just put that somehow in the woodsman without stealing his work <laughs> you know i was like i need to create something like this and the love theme for the woodsman came out like that yeah it's very good <laughs> that's wonderful <laughs> now if we can move away from the woodsman for just a second and we'll sure. return to it i'm sure i kind of want to talk about your other poetry inspired things like nevermore and um evil eye like those types of pieces i want to know the inspiration behind them and how poetry can inspire you to musically basically sure <clears throat> uh that all started about a year ago, um, I was going to do this production of an Edgar Allan Poe play called Four Days with Edgar Allan Poe. And um, that's no longer happening, but bar- during that time, and me being a part of the Composer's Residency, um, the Con Edison Composer's Residency that I got into, I wanted to premiere those works. And it started with Nevermore. Um, so I went to the the Poe Cottage in, in the Bronx and I bought some books and did a lot of research and even contacted the, the Edgar Allan Poe page, Facebook page to have them help share the news, which is really great. Um, but yeah, it was more so of, it, it was for the play. It's funny because growing up, I, did, I wasn't necessarily an Edgar Allan Poe. I wasn't knowledgeable about his work. You know, I was too much, too focused on staying in the practice room and learning repertoire and, <laughs> you know, trying to be a good student. So when I got older and then I did more plays, I was aware of his works, but never actually, indul- you know, indulged myself in them until someone presented the idea of doing a play for him. And I was like, sure, you know, I'm, I'm good at making dark themes. Why not? Let's see what happens. Uh, so the first thing I did was, of course, I read the play. But then I went on YouTube and tried to find someone reciting it, um, uh, Nevermore. And I tried to just hear what type of music would accompany that. I forgot whose recording is very famous on YouTube (laughs) that I listened to. Um, But I tried to just write music to that and then not listen to it for about a week. And then have certain themes be the Raven be Lenore, be this love connection between him and Lenore when when he uh, thinks about her, maybe. You know, it all starts, Nevermore starts uh, with the idea of of him just being in a room, right? And and being very um, lost in thought. And I I would like to think everyone is kind of like that at some point. I know I am. (laughs) 
um, you're very much lost in thought. And then you have this distraction <laughs> that you start to engage, but not really because you're trying to be focused on what you're thinking about. And you think about what you relive, what it is you're thinking about. And then this disturbance enters my, 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 my mind space <laughs> and I become very disturbed. Right. So each part of the music ends up being a certain theme that would have developed more into production. Um, instead, since the production ended up stopping, uh, I just turned these into, for that one, a solo violin piece. And then I made it into a collection of three, where the other two were for quartets. And since I wanted to continue to expand on the other poems, um, yeah, that's kind of how it started and, and what I ended up with. A solo violin piece and then two other movements for string quartet that I had my string quartet play at my concert. Um, and yeah, Evil Eye was, was the most well-received because very um, witty, I think that people were describing it as, which I appreciate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then the last piece of fantasy and it ends up being a memory of the other pieces as well as its own thing. Of course, I tried to stay true to the poem, but from a classical point of view, I tried to use a lot of themes from the second and first movements, right? Almost straying away a little tiny bit from the actual narrative of the poem of the Red Death, right? Just a little bit away um, to make it seem more complete as a classical piece <laughs> that were inspired by his pieces, by Poe's works. Now, which one do you think was a little bit more easy to delve into, the work of Frank Baum or the work of Edgar Allan Poe? <laughs> I think that's a hard question. It's a very hard question. Um, <laughs> I think L. Frank Baum. Uh, Poe is a little dark for me. <laughs> it was a little dark. It's about finding a, a place that I'm not normally in to figure out what that sounds like. And it was, it was kind of uncomfortable. <laughs> it was, it's kind of uncomfortable, especially with Nevermore. Uh, Evil Eye starts off much more uh, hopeful and almost church-like in the piece. And then it comes, it becomes very weird. But it was very much a darker place. Uh, L. Frank Baum was more along the lines of what I was already doing, which was easier for me to tackle. Um, there are certain parts of the piece, too, in, in The Woodsman, where other violinists that either used to play or still play would hear certain things that are reminiscent of Bach's sonata like right in the beginning. Um, it's actually very similar to one of his C, C major sonatas for solo violin. Um, and only a few people actually noticed that. And it's very short. It's, it's maybe two or three measures, but that's also what starts the whole prologue. You know, it's finding inspiration to what I like, what I know, and what I can create and expand on to create something new. So... L. Frank Baum was definitely 
easier to to <laughs> dive into. Mm-hmm. All right, my next question. Oh, I actually have two last questions because I know you've got a time constraint coming up pretty quick. <laughs> it's, it's okay. <laughs> Um, the first one is probably the most basic question that everyone's sick of hearing. What's next for Eddie Hardy? <laughs> What's next? I, uh, let's see. Surprisingly, I never thought that I wanted to be a playwright. And coincidentally, I'm actually writing a play. A writing play about the past, essentially, loosely based on the last two years of my life. Um, and it's it's kind of funny, you know, if it's something really bad that's happened, I have to, you always have to find like a, a funnier, lighter way of telling that story. You know, if something great, that's funny. If it's something unorthodox, that's unusual. You know, it, it, so far, let, let's see if I can find the exact uh, description for you so I don't say something wrong. <laughs> but the story is about a lonely subway musician who barely makes money for rent ends up being discovered by a retired comedian while finding the love of his life on an unpredictable dating app. Now, in my life, that's I actually found my fiance on a dating app. I play a lot in the subways. I don't have a comedian that I know, but I think my mother's pretty funny, and so am I, and <laughs> a lot of people in my life. So, you know, I like to pull in different characteristics of people to create one right parts of my personality create another one link a story that has happened to me um but also making sense to what i'm saying and what i'm trying to say and show who i am so that's that's actually the next thing besides performing all over the city it's it's that's my personal project i'm I'm working on a new play and it's going to be very musical or it's gonna have a lot of music in it. I'm not sure it's a musical yet, but <laughs> it's very, it's very musical in in that sense. Well, let us know when that comes out. We sure. would love to cover it on this show. We would love sure. to cover it on this show. Um, sure, sure. Would you be p- playing yourself in this? Do you think? As of now, I would. Um, and the comedian, I reached out to. Because I'm really excited and kind of giddy about all of this because I reached out to a fellow colleague from Purchase. And I was like, man, you know, Marcus, I've always wanted to, to work with you. And it's going to happen one day, almost, what, nine, ten years later? No, actually five years later. It's like, hey, this is the time. I wrote this part just for you. Okay, find a director. Hey, hey, Dean, remember we work, used to work together all the time? <laughs> That's kind of how it's happening so far. So I, I feel like I'm I'm creating a team and then still writing this play, and I'm really, really excited about it. So yeah, we'll be playing myself and trying to fill in the, the blanks here and there when it happens. That's fantastic. I, I'm excited for this. As just a fan, I'm like, oh, that sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> Um, now my last very last question which is also the question that every composer hates to get but I'm going to ask anyway um, is what is your advice to all the inspiring creatives out there that I know for a fact are listening because me and Andrew are inspiring creatives like or specifically if you want me to get more specific specifically musical theater composers or playwrights like yourself sure advice 
I think after all of my schooling, I've realized that life experience is really what ends up teaching me how to write better. And I think that you have to continue to write. If try to write every single day, if not think about it, if not live the experience that you want to tell one day, um, trying to do any of those things without it being personable to you is going to be very difficult um, from my perspective. So experience life more, write every single day, continue to learn from others and be inspired, always be inspired. One of my things nowadays is that I love artwork. I don't know what it's about. I love going to an art auction, even if I'm not going to buy anything, and just seeing a lot because that also keeps my mind going and expands the horizon for me. So. I think that's, that's a be- that's a beautiful way to end this. Like wrap this all up. Um, I think that was a fantastic interview that he gave. Like he's he's really good at this. He's done this before. I think. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was wonderful having you on. I'm sure there's tons of stuff you want to promote out there for yourself. So go ahead, promote it out there into the world. <laughs> Uh, yeah, again, my name is Edward W. Hardy. Thank you so much for listening. Um, you can follow me at Edward W. Hardy um, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or my website, edwardwhardy.com. Uh, that's about it. <laughs> There's no albums you there want to try go. to get people to buy? Like, uh, buy the Woodsman I'm album. I'm still I love working it. on an album. The only album I have is the Woodsman one, and a few singles that come out here and there. Um, but nothing in the works right now. I just have the play. <laughs> if you have any recommendations on, on something you want me to work on, I I will take that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I well, I have plenty of ideas if you want some. Wright Brothers musical. Make it happen. It's happening. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, that is, no, it was great, great having you on. That'd be really great. <laughs> That's, that's what I said. That's actually something we're kind of shadow working on. Is the set? Thing. <laughs> that's great. I would love hey, to keep see that, that on the down low, Jess. <laughs> <laughs> that's so cool. all right. Let's do our closing remarks, Andrew, so we can wrap this all up. Um. All right. Well, what do you want me to say? Well. <laughs> Just follow. You know how we do this. We do this once a week. Thank you guys for listening to Musicals with Cheese. Please follow us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher at Musicals with Cheese. Our Twitter is at Cheesy Musicals. Instagram musicals. Our our Instagram is Musicals with Cheese. Our YouTube page is Musical Theater Lives. Please shoot us an email at MusicalTheaterLives at gmail.com. Our title card was created by the amazing Jolene Casco. Her Instagram is at Jolene Casco. And... Edward, do you have anything else you want to say before we wrap this all up? No, just thank you so much for having me. It was a, it was a oh, pleasure. Anytime. Anytime you want it's to come back, let us know. Sure. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> it was wonderful having you on. It was an honor. Thank you. Honor's mine. <laughs> all right. We'll see you next time on Musicals with Cheese. Hey, 
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. <laughs> 